Love Extra Virgin Podcast? You can support this show and help keep us ad-free through the coffee supporter feature. It's just like buying us a cup of coffee. It's totally up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the coffee link in the show description to support us now. Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm Natasha Mirosh. And I'm Sam Donsky. Between us, we've toured and tasted our way around more than 60 countries. Join us now as we meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hey Sam. Hey Natasha. Sam, today we have a very special guest, Janet Deneef, who more than 30 years ago fell in love with Indonesia and a Balinese man, and she moved to the island where she's lived ever since. In fact, she's no longer an Australian citizen, having taken Indonesian nationality and handed back her Australian passport. So interesting. Bali certainly does have a place in the hearts of Australians. I know in usual times, a lot of us head there for our holidays. Yeah, I almost feel like I was one of the last people ever to go there. And while I found some things as I expected, there was the over-tourism and the crowded beaches. And it seems there wasn't a lot of attention paid to sustainable tourism. There were other things, in particular the retention of the culture and the incredible food that I just wasn't expecting. Those experiences were really thanks to meeting local people like Janet. I don't know how Janet possibly has time to meet with travel writers. She sounds like a very busy woman. A mother of four, she and husband Kutut own Casa Luna, Indus and Bar Luna. She also runs the Casa Luna Cooking School and is the author of two books, Fragrant Rice, which details her story and insights into local traditions, along with Balinese recipes, while her second is Bali, the food of my island home. But that's not all. In 2004, she created the International Ubud Writer and Readers Festival. That's one literary festival you can just imagine writers are desperate to get an invitation to, I reckon. (laughs) Yes. And then in 2015, she started the Ubud Food Festival. Janet, we feel so lucky to have you on to talk to us about your adopted homeland. Thank you. Nice to meet you both. Janet, would you please tell us the story of how you met and married your husband, Kutut? It sounds a bit like the plot of a romance novel. I met my husband in 1984 in Ubud. I first came to Bali in 1975 and then on my next visit when I came back, 1984, I met my husband the second day of our holiday. I was with a college friend and uh, we just met after dinner. I was staying at Hotel Champuan and we had three meals a day provided so after dinner, he was visiting his friend there and came up and joined us. And the rest, as they say, is history. Jana, in 2019, the year I visited, tourist numbers to Bali were over 6 million. But 30 years ago, when you came to Bali, things were very different, particularly where you live in Ubud. Can you describe what it was like back then? You only came in 2019. Yes. Yeah, boy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. And Janet, uh, I've never yeah. been. <laughs> ah! mm. Gosh, yeah. it's amazing. Well, well, the good thing is at least you've heard of the festival, so that makes me happy. When I came back in 84, back to Ubud, I mean, I, I always preferred Ubud. I never wanted to stay by the coast. So even back then, Ubud was special and it had this cultural appeal. But of course, it was just like a sleepy little town. There was a handful of restaurants, which, I don't know, by 1989, there were a lot more and I I felt there were too many then. Back then, the ducks would walk along the main road. 
the farmers would sort of move them from one rice field to another. And of course, the edge of Ubud was rice fields. Where I live in Jalan Bismar from our house down was pretty well rice fields. And the cows, the crazy farmer used to walk his cow along the main road. So the traffic was not just the odd motorbike and sort of open back truck but it was animals as well so it was a great sideshow in the afternoons and it was quiet it was sleepy it every day felt like a Sunday and I used to stay back then in Monkey Forest Road which again back then also was really after the soccer field mainly rice fields too so it was quiet it was peaceful pretty well most of the expats knew each other because there was only a dozen or so of us and of the expats it was mainly Europeans And it was that same sort of family life that we love, but I guess we had a closer relationship to the locals, to the ceremonies, to all those things, because there weren't as many tourists, for sure. I do wish that I could have seen it back then. (laughs) As Natasha said, and you pointed out as well, despite its modernisation, Bali has managed to hold on to many of its traditions and ceremonies. There are a lot, and it seems they permeate every aspect of everyday life. Janet, did you find any of them hard to get used to or perhaps even in conflict with your own beliefs? It never conflicted my beliefs because I just felt, well, to be honest, there's one God and from one country to the next, he wears different clothing, you know, that's all. And he has a a different language, maybe. I guess as a Westerner, you have to be prepared to commit to the community and you have to be prepared to participate in festivals and ceremonies I have one to go to after this so you have to put your own life and your own interests on hold in order to observe the ritual of Bhutanese life and of course there's a lot of ritual I mean pre-covid there was more now it's sort of toned down a bit so you just have to give up a little bit of your own little indulgences because now when I look back at the way you would live, or for me, before the Bali thing. It it is an indulgence to be able to do whatever you like at any point of the day, whereas now when you live here, you have to stop and join community activities. But the rewards are great. So while you might think it's a compromise of your own life, it's actually enriching it in far more ways than you would imagine. Mm. Well, what are some of those ceremonies that you're talking about that you would stop in your daily activity to take part in? (laughs) Well, today I have to go to a temple ceremony. And the thing with ceremonies here is you have to wear the right clothing. You can't go talking to God in just jeans and a T-shirt. You have to wear neck to knee. Gorgeous clothing, though. In Bali, everything's gorgeous. So I have to pray in the temple today. And then often in the morning, even I might be dressed and ready to go somewhere, my staff will suddenly say, oh, Ibu, that means mother, you have to go to a wedding or the other day, a cremation, or a baby ceremony. There's lots of baby ceremonies there, life cycle, rituals, etc. So you just have to stop and change course and go along to these other events. Look, and at the time you might think, I don't want to go. (laughs) But once you're there, it's fine, everyone's friendly and it's cute and you often get really fantastic food. So, and you know that when you need the community then to support you for any of these events, they're there because it's a give and take situation. You invest in the community and they invest in you as well. So everybody's looking after each other. And what about how the Balinese see you, Janet? You've lived there a long time now and you've obviously assimilated, but are you fully accepted as Balinese? 
Uh, I, I don't think I'm accepted as Bhutanese. I think I'm accepted as a Westerner who married a Bhutanese and lives in a wood. And I'm a member of the Bunja, the local community organisation. It's like being in a country town in Australia. It would take many generations to be accepted as one of them. I think here, if you're respectful and observe their ritual, they accept you no matter what. They're very accepting anyway. So it's just a few basic rules and one of them is to accept their own ways it's pretty easy really i think it's the same for anybody if you just respect them and honor what they do they will do the same for you what about when you visit australia you have family here so i assume you do what are the things that seem odd to you now well probably the strangest thing when i come back is the aussie accent (laughs) (laughs) oh you know it's so funny i mean i swear another visit I don't know when, a year or so ago, sometimes people were talking and I suddenly thought, I actually have no idea what they're saying. And I'm Australian, so that's hilarious. I suppose you see how people live their lives the way they want to and in isolation even or with no connection to their neighbours or a wider community. And you can see that they struggle with that. You know, I mean, the rate of depression and all these kind of side effects from this life of so-called freedom and independence and all of that. I think people struggle with that. Whereas here, because of the community, you've kind of got this huge family that look after you. So I, I think that makes for a happier life. So I think that's what I find disturbing when I go back. I remember even when I arrived at Tullamarine a couple of years ago and there was a huge sign across the freeway and the letters were, are you depressed? And I thought, damn, no, I'm not. I understand there's mental health issues, but sometimes I think maybe we're cutting ourselves off too much from people. And I think that's where COVID has perhaps shown us that the more we live in isolation, the more miserable we are because we get our energy and our zest for life and our passions just charged from those around us. You kind of plug into all your mates and and it makes you happy. So I wonder if that's one lesson we come away from at the end of this COVID, the, the importance of relationships and family and what you gain from the energy of other people around you. Janet, in your book, Fragrant Rice, you talk about when Katut came to stay with you in Melbourne. You were, were you originally going to live in Melbourne and you have this lovely story about how he got to know your neighbours and you'd come home and he'd be in the garden sitting on a chair chatting to all the neighbours. I love that story. But he obviously felt that yeah. lack of community and lack of family. Mm, absolutely. We had this beautiful garden, those old sort of cement, old-fashioned garden benches under one of the big trees in the front yard. And, yeah, I'd come home from school and he was always <laughs> sitting there with some old fella or somebody from around the corner having, having a chat. I think he found it quite shocking and... I swear I'd I'd never really spoken to my neighbour and suddenly they were like best friends and I felt kind of embarrassed. So that's because they're very social here. And I think he just realised when he first came to Australia, he imagined that coming from a place where people say they're a third world country and coming to the almighty West and then thinking, ah, I don't want to live here. It's too sad. And, And also he said to me one time, where are all the old people? Like he'd met a few on the street, but like, where's all the rest of them? And I said, well, they're kind of like in homes. He was very sad to hear that. So I sort of realized in order for us to lead a happy life, we couldn't be in Australia. We had to be in Bali where there was also many more opportunities and easier to get into business and less bureaucracy, et cetera. So it just seemed a better option to live here than 
than in Melbourne. What about your decision to become an Indonesian citizen? Can you tell us about that? I mean, a lot of people around the world would like an Australian passport, but... I know, right? It's really annoying because whenever I come to Australia now, I have to apply for a visa. <laughs> uh, well, it just seemed to make sense given that I'm spending most of my time here and my children are here, going to school here, etc. It just made sense that I would be Indonesian. I mean, I'm still Australian. And in terms of being fairly public, I guess, in business. And I think, too, once I had started the Writers' Festival, it was important to be Indonesian because if people were a bit suspicious of me, those kind of things can happen, too. I mean, I would run the risk of being deported even. So it just made sense for a a safer life here. And also, if I was in the public eye, best to be Indonesian. The same in Australia. If you're in that sort of situation, best to be Australian. So it just seemed the best decision to make at the time. And also, if I go to Australia, I'm only there for max four weeks at a time, maybe twice a year, whereas the rest of the time I'm here. So it just made sense to be Indonesian, given an Indonesian family. It does make sense. Now, you run a guest house and a cooking school in Ubud. Obviously, both have been severely affected by the lack of tourists in these uh, COVID times. But tell us what COVID has meant for your family and for Bali. Well, tomorrow, it's 12 months to the day when I landed in Milan to see my daughter in Florence, sort of thinking I was escaping all the COVID news and I was actually walking into a hotbed of the virus, you know. Mm. Well, it's pretty well decimated business here and even on the streets in Ubud, I'm just noticing more and more and more shops up for rent now. They've been vacated. So, it's a very sad time and it's it's going to get worse, I think, before it gets better. And I know the government's trying to deal with it, but it's a big country, a lot of people and a lot of people living on the poverty line. So the idea of lockdown for people who hardly have anything anyway is a bit prohibitive. But anyway, it's a sad time. And I think more than 80% of the island are unemployed right now. It's big and more than I don't know what the percentage of businesses, but it must be roughly similar. I mean, we have stayed open, Casaluna, because we also have a bakery. If we were relying on restaurant trade alone, we would not have been able to last this long because we're not covering our costs from the restaurant side of the business. But the bakery is helping us stay afloat. I mean, we're still in the red, but it's not too dramatic. (laughs) We've managed to survive on that. So we've been able to keep the staff employed, but limited hours, limited wage. I think that's every business on the island is trying to somehow look after their staff if possible. So our hotel is open, but we only have one room occupied. We're we're offering full accommodation for the month with breakfast and services and pool and blah, blah, blah for $300. We've had some rooms taken, but at the moment just one which doesn't cover our operational costs. So we just have to be on Instagram and Facebook all the time promoting. And for those who follow me on Instagram, they'll see we're producing more sourdough bread. I'm making sausage rolls and crumpets and all sorts of things. I'm sort of, we're pushing the bakery side of the business now because that's what the few expats that are in the community are choosing to buy. So that's what's helping us survive. But on the flip side of that, I think the young generation are quite extraordinary and fantastic. So a lot of the young kids are thinking, okay, time to pivot. 
let's reimagine our career and they're all because they're natural entrepreneurs anyway so a lot of them are starting very small businesses where they're selling you know rice porridge for maybe $1.50 on the side of the street or they're doing little pop-ups with cheap coffee and on the biggest scale we did a series of beautiful videos for the food festival or the what we call Kambali there's one uh, young Bharanese guy that's gone back to his family's farm to revive their vanilla business. There's another guy who's an amazing photographer who's gone back to family land and he's starting his own organic vegetable plantation or whatever. There's others who have gone back to produce their own organic coconut sugar. Some are making simple essential oils and makeup. So suddenly (laughs) there's this small business boom And you can find them all on what they call here Tokopedia. So it's all small business and entrepreneurial kids who are trying to find other ways to survive. And that that part is very exciting. Mm, It is. It's very creative and I'm sure they're very hardworking and will do whatever they can. I love that you're investigating or extending the sourdough thing, given that it seemed the whole world world was making sourdough through COVID, right? I know. (laughs) I know. Well, I've been making it for a couple of years and then I just thought, okay, now I have even more time to perfect it. And my son has blossomed in this time. I mean, he's got an MBA, but he started to make pizza. And in this time, he built his own pizza oven. And now he's open Friday, Saturday, Sunday, churning out amazing pizza that he tasted when he was initially visiting his sister. And I said to him, well, why don't you hang out in the bakery? So he's been playing around with my sourdough bread and he's transformed it into these works of art with the beautiful drawing things on top so I'm just loving to see how it's affecting my own kids as well and my son's amazing my daughter's been doing the social media part of it all my other daughter does all the behind the scenes stuff but she's been doing next level cakes now so we're keeping people fat through this whole (laughs) (laughs) I think I saw a photo of that that sourdough loaf on social media actually (laughs) it looked amazing it's amazing and so Mm -hmm. I've said to him let's just run with it like Mm -hmm. let's do some new flavors and uh, it's fantastic you're not an expat living there you are really immersed in Balinese life can you tell us what a typical day for you looks like Janet A typical day, the first most important thing I do in the morning when I get up is I have a cup of Balinese coffee that I'm absolutely crazy about. And I hang out in the bakery, actually. So I just look at all the sourdough and I just, I love the scent of bread. So I tend to sit there in the mornings and catch up with my social media. And then after that, I either do yoga. I'm a huge fan of yoga. I go to the gym as well. I mean, I just find I have to do all these things for stamina, which, of course, I don't need as much stamina right now, but nevertheless, I keep it going. So I try and do something kind of healthy in the morning or walk the dogs. It's really nice just to go out on the street and breathe the fresh air and go jalan jalan. And then, yeah, the rest of the day is just meetings. The other project we have at the moment right now is what we call the Ubud Artisan Market, which I started actually with Casa Luna about two years ago and then we stopped it with COVID. At the end of last year, we revived it, but now I have the festival running it because they're much better at running events. And so we started that last December and we will run it again. We've only done it once. We keep 
coming head to head with new regulations. But anyway, by the end of March, April, we plan to be back on track. And for me, it's a very exciting project because it's a little bit like the Writers' Festival. It's a little bit like the Food Festival. But the focus is young entrepreneurs and to see what they're creating at this time. And I'm crazy about the woven fabric in Bali, uh, what we call that or tunun. And so I'm talking to some of the communities around the Gianya region who have also revived these weaving traditions. I mean, these things are so exciting. So for the first time in absolutely years, some of these small cottage industries they now include young women. I went to one of the other day and, and there's women there like 25 years old who are now learning to weave traditional Balinese style. So this artisan market will become a platform for these traditional heritage crafts, but also to look at the innovations that are happening right across the board. So it's textiles, it'll be jewellery, food, whatever else we can find out there. So that's what I love about Bali too, because the artisan crafts are still very much alive and kicking and people are so extremely talented what they can create with their hands. They're real masters of artisan crafts. Sounds amazing. You mentioned the markets, Janet, and I loved the markets in Ubud. Everything is so fresh and there's so much variety. And I loved eating out too. The food is amazing. Can you tell us what sets Bali apart from the rest of Indonesia and perhaps some of the essentials of Balinese cuisine? It's funny that you should say that because I've actually just taken a road trip from Bali right across to Jakarta and I'm crazy about Indonesian food and I've travelled a lot around Indonesia and tasted food all over the place. But there's absolute freshness in Balinese food that I didn't get in some of the other places that we visited because they don't use additives that much there's sort of a trend in indonesia to add what they call it to make the flavor better and i'm thinking how why you do do you need to make the flavor better when we're in the spice islands we have this amazing produce and spices and ingredients at our doorstep so i think bali from years of having um, i don't know if it's a western thing because even in the 70s westerners living in ubud would tell the Balinese not to use msg based products there's this lovely freshness the flavours are fantastic and there's also the kind of seasonal vegetables they use are really interesting and exciting. But it's a really vibrant cuisine here. It's, it's really dazzling, the many layers of spices that they use. And it's not necessarily chilli hot. It can just be vibrant through the layers of, you know, gingers and aromatics and the lemongrass and the lime leaves, those kind of things. So it's really a multi-leveled cuisine it just makes your palate go crazy it's like a legong dance you start flittering all over the place so yeah it's a fantastic food it, it really is and i think that's also been exciting to see the evolution of the cuisine with young kids learning more and the cross-pollination of other chefs coming onto the island everybody you know getting excited together it can only be a good thing so um, but indonesian food is fantastic it just it does vary from region to region and island to island but there's no questioning that Balinese food is fantastic. Mm. And I believe that Bali, because it has a smaller Muslim population than the rest of Indonesia, pork is big there, particularly suckling pig. Is that right? You're very famous for your suckling pig dish. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. We have Chinese and Taiwanese tourists that'd be beating a path to Ubud to go to Ibu Oka to eat suckling pig. The Balinese have it for their ceremonies and uh, they're big pork eaters. So 
ain't nothing going to change that, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so, Can you tell us how they cook that pork dish? Well, they first you start off with them, you know, your suckling pig. They fill the cavity with a pile of spices, like a serious amount of spices. And coconut oil, fresh coconut oil, is sort of fundamental to Balinese cooking and it elevates all those different flavours. So you've got coconut oil in there. Um, you've got a lot of leaves. Balinese love lots of leaves in their cooking, the salam leaves and whatever else they can find, they throw it in. And sometimes, I think they sometimes put cassava leaves in there too because they're a little bit bitter and that sort of cuts the richness of the pork. So you've got a ton of spices that go into the cavity and then they throw in a couple of rocks there to distribute the heat, stow it up, and then they baste the skin, the kulit, the skin with oil and turmeric to give it a gorgeous golden glow. So it's like enamel by the time it's finished and super crisp and fantastic just that slow roasting process it takes about three to four hours slow roasting over coffee wood because it's a slow burning wood that doesn't give you a lot of what you call it here we call it us up like a lot of smoke it's just a clean burn and just slow cooks the meat beautifully and brings out the sweetness the tenderness and it's pretty damn fantastic (laughs) i love it I remember Anthony Bourdain came and and did a a series in Bali and he featured this restaurant that subsequently became quite famous, I believe. Yes. Well, I actually had dinner with Anthony and my friend Sam, my other friend Sam, (laughs) and I told him about Bali. I said, you have to come. So eventually he did come to Bali and he went to Ibu Okas, I think. Oh, he went to the other one too. He went to Pande Egi, whatever his name is, in Gyanyar. He went to another one. So that, of course, now is... Chock-a-block, very popular. And I think he also went to Norinuri's, which was run by an American guy, and it was focusing on pork rib. So any of these places he visited, of course, became chock-a-block and highly successful. So he certainly made a little bit of a mark on Ubud. And uh, actually, it's kind of sad we couldn't hold the Ubud Food Festival last year because we had lined up to do a tribute to Anthony Bourdain and look at the impact he made on Indonesia, actually, but also, of course, on the culinary tourism of Ubud. We felt that we should honour that, but, of course, we had to cancel that program. That is a shame. Well, that pork yeah. sounds incredible, mm-hmm. and I and I think I would fly in just for that. <laughs> I know there'd be a lot more to, to discover, but that sounds very, very inviting yes. indeed. When you started your cooking school and classes, and now I, I know things are, uh, are different at the moment, but who was your market? I guess just tourists in general. I started teaching here, like 1989 actually, but I guess I always felt Ubud was a bit like a university town. People came here to learn something because they were so enamoured with the culture, so I thought, okay. And, of course, when I first came here, I was the same and I really wanted to learn about the cooking. So officially started in 1992 when I set up Casa Luna, I started the cooking school and I knew any sort of tourist that would be interested in cooking would surely want to learn because we were the only one and every year I'd sort of develop a new class or do different things. So it's a whole mix of tourists, I mean mainly Aussie I suppose because that's where I'm best known, but also Malaysians or Singaporeans, um, even Japanese, for those who speak English, I guess. And then, of course, Dutch, all the rest from America, the UK, from everywhere, actually. Are you doing any online cooking classes? 
I'm just about to start. I'm doing one with a girl next weekend. And for me, it's a bit of a pilot project because uh, I've been wanting to start doing classes, but I'm too lazy. (laughs) I just haven't got around to it. But I will start because I was thinking I could do pre-recorded ones, but I thought that's not really my style. So I think I'll do like live online classes like Zoom where I can actually chat to people and they can ask questions Mm. because sometimes when you're cooking food that you're not used to, sometimes you just need someone to say, no, no, don't do that, do this. Often it's something really simple and at least if I can be there to sort of guide people step-by-step through recipes, I think that to me is a better way to do it. Mm. I can see why you thought Uber needed its own food festival and in a normal year, what's it like? Uh, Yeah, I tell you, I had the best program ever planned for last oh. year so I was like oh, I know we're like oh. well I suppose I always wanted to do a food festival but of course the writers festival was created after the Bali bombings and that was that felt like the right thing to do at that time so but deep down I always wanted to do a food festival but I knew in the earlier days well people when they thought of Balinese food they just thought of Bali belly so but now when people think of Balinese food, they're like, yeah, barley belly because they're put on like four kilos. So <laughs> I guess once we got to about the 10-year mark with the Wood Writers, something like that, I think it was 2015, I decided, okay, full steam ahead. So I said to the team, I got a great idea. And whenever I say that, I think they run. No, not another one. <laughs> um, I said, we're going to do a food festival. And luckily, my team, of course, Indonesian, love food and Everybody was like, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. So I think that was what was exciting too, that the staff really loved the idea. And, of course, the audience, the attendees of the festival are mainly Indonesian because nobody loves Indonesian food more than Indonesians. And I just thought it's time to celebrate the cuisine now. We can look at local food, Balinese food. We can look at food from across the region. We can look at the new innovations. We can look at young chefs. We can look at what the non-Indonesian international chefs are bringing to the table um, so we can just have a lot of fun with food. Now, the Writers' Festival is pretty big and it's been around quite a while, as you just said. Is literature of particular interest for you? Yes, absolutely. I studied literature at school and actually I studied children's literature when I was at college. I love that. I've always loved writing and I guess too with the Writers' Festival, as I mentioned before, with the Bali bombings, I felt we had to do something. But at that time, I was finishing up my first memoir book, Fragrant Rice. So I was was already kind of in a literary space and I was already connecting with publishers and other festivals. So I was kind of moving into that circle. I just felt that because it's an oral tradition here, I felt that everybody here has stories. I mean, everybody has stories, but I thought by bringing in the Writers' Festival, maybe it'll be a time when more Indonesians can learn to write their stories and also connect with all the local writers, non-Indonesian writers, and it's a powerful tool. And back then, of course, we were suffering from the impact of the bombings. And as I kept saying, the pen is mightier than the sword. So I felt that literature was perhaps going to steer us into a more positive future and also give us a platform to discuss everything we need to discuss. So that was how that happened. Yeah, Yeah. love that. Who were some of the guest writers that you've had come and be part of the festival? Everybody. Um, (laughs) Who would say people ask me that? (laughs) 
I know. Well, some do because we're a little bit poor. That's the only thing. Mm. So sadly, we can't afford to offer fees, but we say to them, we're going to give you a fantastic experience. We're going to treat you like a Baronese prince or princess. We're going to put you in a gorgeous hotel, like exquisite hotel. We're going to offer you spa treatments and sublime meals and things like that. So while we can't give you cash in the hand, we're going to lavish you. We've had gorgeous people like Richard Flanagan and even back then Anita Desai, um, Kiran Desai. We've had, you know, Charlotte Wood and all the amazing Aussie writers. Wale Soyenka, Nobel Laureate. We've had Michael Mandachi, Amitav Ghosh. Well, it goes on and on. Even um, Alexander McCall-Smith. We've kind of had everybody. Akila the other day, a couple of years ago. Just amazing writers. But I have to say, I really love writers with the cause. And in fact, some people have said about the Writers' Festival that it's almost more a human rights festival, posing as a literature festival, because I love those who are writing about different issues that are a bit more challenging. My aim with the festivals is that everybody who leaves their perspective on the world has shifted a little bit. So I think that's important. And you can do it in a place like Bali. (laughs) I believe you combined the Food and Writers Festival and offered them virtually last year, Janet. Do you have a plan for 2021 and beyond? Last year we just figured, okay, time to experiment. So, um, and we felt we wanted to excite the local arts community and provide some inspiration and then somehow incorporate them. And so we experimented with the online platform, of course, and we did a few events on the ground and we threw in the food element. So we sort of combined the two events, which actually was more successful than we imagined. And it was a whole new world for us. But I was excited that my team suddenly had all these new skills. Uh, This year, I'm still thinking we will definitely do some online sessions, but I don't think we'll run it for as many days and we'll do some on the ground for a local audience. What I'm trying to do this year is build our community because Indonesia is a huge country. There's more than 17,000 islands And so what I want to do this year is find a way through social media, just strengthen our community and have IG live sessions and all those sorts of things, but also connect with the younger writers, the emerging writers, see if we can start awards. I want to see if I can get them mentored. I want them to start having the privileges that Western writers have. So I want to see if I can do all the background stuff this year. So the festival will probably present quite differently, but we have to make a change with our literary community. So that's my aim. Let's talk about more food. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Happy to do that. (laughs) On the subject of food, because, of course, it's a bit of a favourite of ours, what are the top dishes you'd recommend eating in Bali and where should people go to eat them? Of course, we talked about babi guling. I think gung chung now in Ubud, people think he's the best. Well, I'm saying that. My son thinks he's the best and my son's an absolute food aficionado. So Ubud is great for babi guling anyway. I think you have to try any of the fish by the coast places where you eat the whole fish with sambal, things like that. I mean, I don't know if Jimbanan is still open, but I love what Indonesians do with fish. Otherwise, there's uh, if you can't if the places around the coast are not open, I'm sure um, Ikan Bakar Cianjur in Denpasar is still open. They're not Baranese as such, but damn, they have just outrageously good seafood or fish. Actually, speaking of that, 
the trend now is to go to Kintamani, which is up the hill. And I think because there's that attraction now of eating, you know, outdoors and really natural kind of places. And Kintamani is famous for ikan mujair, which is tilapia. They're the little fish. Yes, little fish. They're really delicious and sweet. They cook that in really beautiful ways. So I think that that's something worth investigating to go to Kintamani and eat this particular local fish from the lake. See, it's fresh from the lake. What else? What's the, is it called, I mean, is it called lua? Yeah. Lua? Luak, copy luak, luak. No, the, yes. the minced. Um, oh, yeah, with the, lawar, with the blood, lawar. lawar. I mean, lawar is not always with blood. I mean, it is colour-coded. It comes in different colours and different ingredients. There's a bit of a very interesting resurgence of lawar because I think in a way lawar is the quintessential Balinese food or dish. It's a really masculine dish. It's sort of high-energy, high-powered food. It's all chopped with a cleaver. Can you tell uh, our listeners who may not know what it is? Can you yeah. tell us what it is? So the essence of lawar is it's a community dish, right? So it's one of those things that is created for ceremonies when you get all the men cooking the food. I mean, it wouldn't work if it was just a stir fry. It's got to be something that involves all the men in big circles and in this case, big chopping boards and big knives and they chop roasted coconut. They chop it. It's ground meat like pork if it's a ceremony or duck things like that and the meat might be simmered in coconut milk for example and then you've got steamed veggies that are chopped so everything's chopped small small because you're eating it with rice too so it complements the size of the grain and it's eaten with the hands normally in a ceremony so it's highly seasoned with spices and often quite spicy and you can get different types of meat but now there's a trend to have like goat lawar or squid lawar or tuna or marlin but the basics are the same it's a particular type of spice paste it's shrimp paste it's fried it's shredded or grated coconut or chunky coconut chopped with a cleaver and the fine fine meat and sort of all mixed together and you know there's lime leaves in there and uh, crisp shallots etc so it's pretty good (laughs) (laughs) it sounds incredible (laughs) the Balinese also seem to have a bit of a sweet tooth are there any sort of specialities in Bali sweet speciality I don't agree that they've they eat a lot of sweets actually I mean they they snack on some sweet things that's I think probably their drinks are sweet they have little cakes I suppose but these are all temple things that they don't eat all the time or they have like black rice pudding but even that's a snack it's not something they make that much in a way but yeah they use of course for their traditional sweets they use rice flour and coconut sugar or palm sugar and coconut milk so they're actually gluten-free and they make the little clip on you know the little round balls with the palm sugar inside with the coconut around the outside they're pretty fantastic they're like little this bomb sort of thing they make those thin pancakes with the grated coconut filling They make temple cakes, all sorts of different temple cakes. Traditionally, they don't really use wheat flour. Yeah, they tend to be sticky. In the absence of being able to fly in and eat some of this food, we'll definitely Uh have to try to recreate some of these things. The flavours just sound so enticing. They're pretty good. Lastly, Janet, for when we can get back to Bali, can you please give us a few insider tips of things to do and see that perhaps just incorporate your local insider perspective so that people can really make the most of a visit to Bali. I mean, I've always felt Bali is 
fantastic when explored off the beaten track when you can actually, like I said, drive to Kintamani, enjoy the view. There's lots of new groovy cafes there. Drive to some of the temples, go to Kung Kung or drive along the road to Chandidasa. I love doing that. All those beyond the built-up areas where you get off the beaten track and just enjoy this beautiful nature. There's places like Badugal, Cedarman, where they're famous for that really glorious Songket cloth. I think it's those kind of outdoorsy little adventures that are fantastic. And there's just great dining experiences all over the place. So whether you want really Balinese, which, I mean, that's a warung kind of thing, which is not for everybody. But, of course, the restaurants are doing fantastic things nowadays. Yes, I suppose the key is when everybody comes back is just to support everybody, actually, and just get out and about and just... Put TripAdvisor away and just <laughs> just go yeah just go out and enjoy and help people too. I do hope that it's not too long before we can come visit. Can you just tell us what a warung is? It's a very typical Indonesian eatery, isn't it? It's like a little street side stall, and it's usually grandma or mum, you know, selling bits and pieces. So it might be that she has a warung of food where she sells nasi champur, which nasi is steamed rice champur means mixture so it's usually steamed rice and a mixture of side dishes a bit of meat veg whatever it's just that usual thing where they have the table with their little glass case with the food inside and it's all cooked in the morning but also it can just be a warung where they just sell coffee and then they sell little packets of stuff it's a bit like a milk bar in a really simple format or like a drive-in like at the petrol station when you get a bit of this and a bit, a bit of that but in the old days too the warung was the meeting place a bit like an Aussie pub where you, you drink really good Balinese coffee and catch up on the world. So it's just a, a very simple eatery, but they're cute. They've got a lot of character. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been really interesting to learn a bit more about Bali and, and particularly Ubud. And as I said, I do hope that it's not very long before we can all be visiting and maybe come and do a cooking class with you. Yes, absolutely. You must, you must. <laughs> yes, thank you so much, Janet. Until we can get back to Bali, I'm going to delve into my island home cookbook and cook up some oh, fantastic. dishes. It's a beautiful, beautiful cookbook. Thank you. I'm putting you on the spot. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we could get a recipe, something from your book. Oh, I, I can do that. Yep. Okay, Easy. that yes. would be wonderful. Thank yep. you very, very much. Easy. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye, bye. And listeners, if you want to get your hands on either of Janet's books, we'll put up links as well as links to the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival and the Food Festival. So you can dream and plan for when we can all travel again. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews and more at our website, extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. And if you like what we do, you can support us by buying us a virtual coffee at our website. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please give us a like.